Shalom, and welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, pastor of Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana, and I am so excited to be with you guys today. I hope that your week is going well, and I hope that you are full of uh, still basking in the remnants of Sukkot. I know I've said that the last couple of weeks, but uh, it's just been so incredible uh, the fall Moedim, and uh, for the time we're in right now, uh, we just need to bask in uh, in the the, uh, the encounters with Hashem that we've all had through this last uh, feast season. And so, I hope your week's going well. I hope your families are well. And uh, it is my privilege. We're just going to jump into it today uh, to have with me, in my opinion, uh, one of the absolute rock stars of the. Messianic Hebrew roots. I, I don't, Dina. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, uh, I don't want to shame you by using a label or box you in by using a label. But um, uh, Dina Die, Doctor Dina Die, is with us today. And um, Dina, I am so excited that you're with us. And we've been working on this for a, a few weeks. And we had the feast and everything else. Uh, and I just, I, I love you. I love your stuff. I love your conversation. I, I love the way you view the scriptures and the world. And so I'm really, really glad to have you with us as we talk about your your new book, which is out and selling like hotcakes on Amazon. And we're so fortunate for that. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Dina Dye. Well, hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm not sure I can live up to the introduction, but I'll try. <laughs> And yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, the book, as you said, especially in the last week, the book is really selling well, and it's very encouraging. My hope is that it'll reach a larger audience, uh, you know, worldwide, and so that we can start thinking about the Bible perhaps in a different way. Um, as you said, and others, this feels like my best work. I, I think it's a lot easier to engage in the material than than perhaps my first book, The Temple Revealed in Creation. This one, of course, The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark, From Chaos to Order. So I'm very excited about the book, and I'm excited to be able to do interviews, you know, and talk to uh, some influencers in my sphere and, and get the word out. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, and we, we've talked about uh, on different occasions, and we kind of laugh about it, but um, I recommend your books to everybody. Uh, and especially folks who are understanding that, well, like the temple's kind of a big deal. The tabernacle's kind of a big deal. How do we find out more about it? And maybe may, your books may not be the first place I should send people, right. but I, I always do recommend <laughs> them and go, like, yeah, you got, you got to read this stuff. And the, the comment I get more than anything else was like, it was really good, but it was kind of hard to read. And so, you know, this book, um, the, the, when you're dealing with Noah's Ark and the temple revealed in Noah's Ark is is I think the perfect blend of uh, midrashic, you know, like you call them vignettes, um, and and symbology and what how to read scripture. We were talking before the interview, and you know, one of my the most most world shaking epitome or not epitomies, but uh, revelations the last couple of months is that we just don't know how to read the Bible. Um, we know in in our in our everyday culture, we know of we're reading a lab report from the hospital versus a comic book, we know how to read those two things differently. Um, but right. when, we, when we open the pages of the Bible, we read it all literally or, you know, and we just, we miss so, so much. So um, I really appreciate the work you've done, uh, taking you three years to do this, but the work you've done yes. here is, <laughs> is, is a concise college course in, America, in, a, in ancient Near Eastern uh, history and literature and culture, and, and I'm so thankful about it. So let's jump in with an easy one. We'll start with an easy one. Um, in your view, uh, 
Uh, what is the Bible about? So uh, taking that 40,000 foot view and, you know, I, I, as I've taught over the past 40 years, I can see different filters, you know, for example, one filter people that are, it's easy for people to see is the marriage. So they can see the relationship between God and Israel as a, as a marriage, the bride and the groom. So that becomes a filter for people as they're reading. And that, that's, that's an easy one. As I stood back, I, I began to see the temple as a filter. And temple language was jumping up everywhere. And then as I began to uh, research the material from the ancient Near East perspective, I began to realize just how significant the concept of the temple was and really the involvement of the gods and the kings and, and that the place of the presence of, you know, the ancients' gods and, of course, our god. But then even that I began to see as well the importance of understanding kingship and the king because that was his throne in the temple, all this stuff. So the filters upon filters upon filters. But finally, with this book, I went back even farther and I realized it does even it's more than even the temple and, and the kingship and, and the enthronement and all that. It's the language of creation. Mm. Creation, decreation, new creation. So the, the, the big overall picture is that story that God created, that man destroyed, and that God, you know, helped man recreate uh, a new kingdom. And so from Genesis to Revelation, I would say, is the story of new creation or recreation, however you want to put it. And so th th that to me, I think I finally see <laughs> the big, 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 big picture because... <laughs> Creation language is infused throughout the Bible. So, for example, every time you read a story about the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs and she's barren, and then God comes and something happens and now she produces the matriarch, that is, that's the story of recreation. Mm. That's the story of rebuilding a house for a place for the presence of God. So, that's a fairly simple example, but you'd be hard-pressed not to find one story or or one chapter in the Bible that doesn't have in it language of creation, reproducing after its own kind and bringing forth new life. And so the world of the nations was death, you know, destruction, military conquest, killing people. And then the story, Israel's story of creation is life coming forth and, and bringing forth uh, the seed for, for generation after generation. Yeah, I love that. And I, I stumbled upon a thought um, this last this last feast cycle that um, you know when we come into Torah, um, we depending on what lens or, or how we came in the, the the way that God used to bring us in. Some people it's Shabbat, uh, some people it's the feast, some people it's dietary. You know all different right. angles. And so what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to study and to really cling on to let's say the feast. And we study the feast, and we, we just kind of narrow down on that, or dietary, or whatever, whatever Hashem used. And one of the things that I think we've missed is that where all of the Torah, um, if you take the temple, the temple is the hub. And you have no feast without the temple. You have no dietary, right. really, explanation or, or responsibility. Uh, you don't have Shabbat, really, without the temple ideal, Right. And so when you, right. so we study all of the, the, the legs of the temple, um, but we don't study the temple itself. And right. when you take the temple out, all the legs start to fall apart or they, 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 they are unbalanced against each other. And yeah. so what, what I'm challenged by what you just said is 
maybe even more than the temple, really the temple is the, the idea of order and creation. And so it's, the temple is not the hub, maybe. Creation is the hub, and, and order is the yeah. hub, and just is signified by the tabernacle or the temple. Well, that's really the conclusion I reached after writing this book. I mean, I didn't think that's where I was going to end up. So, you know, people write books different ways. Some, uh, they call it writing by the seat of their pants. <laughs> Others write with a complete outline and they just fill in the blanks. And I thought I would be one who wrote an a- with an outline because that's kind of how I think. But it ended up not being the case. I just kind of plowed through and it's kind of wherever the Lord is leading me. And so I, this is not where I thought I would end up. But it's clear to me that that really is the hub of that's the whole message of the Bible. And we're not used to looking at it that way. And, and, and we know, I mean, Yeshua in Paul, we, we see sort of language of new creation, but we, yeah. don't, we don't put it back in its proper perspective. Honestly, I, I think we could say creation and the temple are kind of synonymous terms. Right. So because God, in God building, if you will, creation. He is making a house for himself. Mm-hmm. And so really the, the concept of, and temple language and creation language kind of overlay one another. So sometimes it's hard to separate the two. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And the, I guess the, the balancer for me is that um, when, we, when we study whatever we're studying, you know, biblical principles or, or Torah commandments or whatever, when we study them outside of the, the lens of and the accountability to so if, if we're studying Shabbat and that doesn't improve our understanding and living of new creation, then we're really not, then what's the point? If, you know, if we're, if we're going to be really belligerent militarily, uh, you know, uh, militaristic about our observance of kosher laws, that's great. But if not in the light of how that affects creation and new creation, then what's, then what's the point? And so it's the balancer uh, for, for these things so that we can bear his image, you know, better and bring new creation. So I, I love that. So in talking about um, how we read the Bible and, and what it's all about, you, you, you kicked me in the stomach in the first part of the book where you wrote a little bit about myth. And, and we have different literary genres in Scripture, right? You have narrative, you have poetry, you have prophecy, you have um, you know, all these different types of, of, of literature uh, that the, the Lord and that the writers use. And one we don't hear a lot about is myth. So a myth is something that is a false story, right? Well, I mean, that's so probably around the Middle Ages, things just twisted. And, and you can't hardly even say the word. It's very difficult to go to a group and talk about myth mythology without everyone's mind going immediately to it's false, it's fiction, it's not true, it's about quaint primitive uh, peoples but has nothing to do with our age of science. I mean, you can see that it's in many ways just the complete antithesis of, of science and fact and sort of, so it's really even, it's difficult to even talk about it. But you have, you know, when you go back into that culture and time, I mean, that's that that's how they told their stories. Their stories were quote unquote mythological stories, but they were true. But there was an element to them that was symbolic, and so it's hard for us to plow through that because we want everything to be literal. Right. So, for instance, you know, I look out my window, I see trees, and so somebody will ask me, you know, what a tree is. So I'm going to describe it in physical detail mm-hmm. of what it looks like. You know, the leaves are long, and you know what the bark looks like, and blah blah. 
But but in the ancient world, you know, they looked at a tree and they saw the attributes of the tree, the function of the tree, the, 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 the strength and the power and how it was the largest element in their world. And so they began to associate the, the trunk of the tree with the divine king. Okay, so um, we see that language all the way through scripture. Right. So theirs was a world, it, it's a real world. Yeah, they they are describing real things, but they're using language that is very metaphorical, very symbolic to describe real things. And that's not how we, that we don't look at it that way. Right. And so these stories yeah. are real. They've been passed down from generation to generation, but infused in those stories is language that's very colorful and graphic, but very metaphorical. So we're kind of stuck. We take it all just literally. And then because it makes no sense, we just sort of toss it out. Right. And, you know, I, I <laughs> Genesis is, uh, Bereshit is, for me, the, the kind of king of this type of, you know, trying to wrap your mind around yeah. how the Bible works and what the language is. And I remember having Brad Scott um, <clears throat> to speak for us just a few years before he, he passed and his memory via blessing. And I remember joking with him saying, you know, he spent 40 years teaching in the first six chapters of the book of Genesis. And, nice. and, I, and I remember yeah. thinking, how? I mean, it's six chapters. Just get on with it, you know, and get to the rest of Scripture. Right. And and not long after he came, God really started to, start to deal with me. And, and for the last uh, four years or so, I can't get out of chapter two. You know, it's just, it's one of those things because your mind, our minds, really struggle against the well it has to be literal and it has to be historical that's true quote unquote right um when mm -hmm. when something's not literal or historical then it's not quote unquote true and that is such a brain right. twister for us as modern yeah. modern people. oh it's very very challenging and it, i mean in some ways we're just a victim of sort of the age of enlightenment when when reason became god and we separated mm -hmm. science from religion and you know we're a couple hundred years past that so it's it's just really tough. And like I said, I can't even hardly use the word without people going there. Right. But if we can appreciate that the writers are writing these stories in myth form, but they are historical with real people, real places, real events, but they're infusing something into the story that we're not used to looking at. And I would submit the language they're, they're infusing into the story is the language of creation. We're going we're gonna to just see that. And then to contrast that with, you know, uh, non-order, you know, a decreation. Mm -hmm. And that that's that's the story all the way through. And so I, I always end up back in Genesis 1. Like, it doesn't matter <laughs> what I'm doing. There I am. And I know some people <laughs> probably think, okay, could we just move along here? But there's not a story in the Bible that doesn't take us back there. Like, what is, right. if we don't understand what God is doing in Genesis 1, we have no hope of understanding what God is doing in Revelation. Right, right. And I, I think you know Mike Clayton um, yeah. pretty, pretty yeah. well. And uh, Mike, I've heard him several times when he's teaching a group, a new group especially, he'll say, where's the beginning of the Bible? And of course, everybody says Genesis 1. And he says, no, it's Revelation 20, 21. That's the beginning because it's one big circle. It's bringing us yeah. back to Genesis one, and I and I love that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, about exile and creation. Um, one of the things that we uh, we have missed, I feel like, in our Christian upbringing, I'll speak for myself, is just the 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 massive cataclysm that is exile. And yeah. in reading through Deuteronomy twenty eight a couple of years ago, uh, I mean the the blessings are nice, right? 
but the curses, they just go on and on and they're just, they're vile, right? They just get really, really rough. And and I realized that through studying that chapter, um, that all of these curses are happening to Israel while they're still in the land. And it's not until you get to the end of the chapter where God says, if all these things don't turn your heart, then I'm going to exile you. And I was like, whoa, the, as, as horrific as some of these curses are, they're not as bad as exile. Right. And, and I don't think we as, as Christians with a Christian background, we don't understand how cataclysmic exile is in the creation process or the recreation process. And you write about that a little bit. I think, um, yeah. yeah, you said the, yeah, that was a section. I was trying to get people to, to have that as a lens, right? the exile. That you wrote, creation was the message. I think you were quoting a, a scholar here. Creation was the message of liberation for Israel, whether she was exiled in Babylon or Egypt or under Roman rule. So the exile gives way to creation. Um, yes. In, in that sense, and and so, what is the purpose and function of exile? Well, the bottom line is, of course, uh, it's separation from the presence of God. I mean, really, if we take it back to sort of hell and heaven and, you know, all that sort of stuff, that, that's its ultimate. Hell, if you will, Sheol or whatever, mm. is the, the ultimate separation from God and heaven represented, the, you know, being in the presence of God. But it, it, it very much is a filter throughout the scriptures. And that's why at the beginning of the book, I tried to present this because this isn't a way we're used to looking at the scriptures and especially in Christianity, we, we, can, we do not appreciate the devastation caused by exile. So you think of them in their land. I mean, they lost, their temple was destroyed, their king was removed, all their institutions crumbled, the people lost their identity, they were, you know, in an honor-shame culture, they're now at the, you know, the bottom of the societal heap, they are mixed and mashed all through, you know, another culture, and, and the identity thing is probably one of the number one things because the high one of the highest values in in the ancient cultures was identity you know who you were as a people and, mm. and a tribe clan family so they literally lost everything and then of course they spent those years in babylon and many of them didn't didn't even return so the the ultimate meaning of course is their their exile from the presence of god but but they basically lost their it's not just, see, we look at it in spiritual terms, but they lost, physically, they lost their whole nation. Sure. So we might be able to understand that a little better now as we watch our nation starting to collapse and losing the values and the institutions that we once held dear in our, in our very framework in the Constitution. So if we could take that a step further, you know, to where they ended up, maybe that'll help us understand what's at stake now for us in in, in America. Yeah, our I think one of the biggest, or maybe the biggest, I won't call it sin, but hindrances to the American Christian, uh, or even Torah pursuant, Hebrew root, Messianic, whatever you want to call us, um, one of the biggest hindrance, I think, just really is our comfort to really connecting yeah. with the biblical story. I mean, you Agreed. know, some people like to move homes, you know, every two or three, four years, and, and that's fine. I Personally, we built our home. We've been in it 17 years. We're going to die in that house. I mean, unless God radically changes, you know, changes our, our plans. And the thought of some foreigner, nothing against foreigners, but some foreigner coming in and saying, the house that you built, that your kids have memories in their bedrooms, the beds that they slept in, you know, the table that you set around and made memories, that's all ours now. 
and and somebody else is going to yeah. sit at your table. Somebody else is going to lay in their kids in your your kids' beds. I mean, we just we have no we have no clue um, what what that's what that's about. So in a very real sense, not over spiritualizing. So mentioning kind of talking about our our country and and I know this can be really divisive, but I really don't care because it's just Ray Charles could see what's going on right with our our cult, culture and our country. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about. Um, about wisdom and order versus chaos, because we talk a lot about order and chaos. But what does that what does that really mean? Like boots on the ground, what does that really mean in real yeah. real terms? So the concept of wisdom is very fundamental, foundational in the ancient Near East world. I mean, every king doesn't matter whether it was in Israel or whatever nation they were ruling asked their gods for wisdom to be able to govern. And then we see, of course, in scripture and Proverbs in multiple places, speaking of this, of wisdom as a bride, and that wisdom was with God in the beginning at the foundation. You know, the wisdom was a, a, an attribute, I guess you could say, in which that was used to build a house. So that's why wisdom is associated with women, because it's women who build a house through, you know, yes, they receive the seed, but the, the fruit comes forth from the womb. And and the household just keeps regenerating through the woman. Mm-hmm. So that's there's a concept there in, in, in associating wisdom and, and with with women. And I write about that quite a bit in the first book, in the in the book on creation. So the idea, um, if we look at the house, um, of course, it will be a dynastic house in the scriptures. So going back to Proverbs again, we see Solomon wrote the book, but where did that wisdom come from? Well, it came from his mother, Bathsheba, who was the wife of King David, wife of the king and the mother of the next king in line. And so this idea of, of her, she passed along that the wisdom to build a house, to create a dynasty. And so then wisdom gets associated with the Holy Spirit as well as being feminine. And so when I always tell people, you know, it's read Proverbs over and over again. You want to build a great house here it is. And what's unique about Proverbs is even though it'll give you, it'll tell you to do this, but don't do that. And then four pages later, it'll tell you the opposite yeah, right. <laughs> because the, the idea of wisdom is where it works in the moment. Mm. You know, when you exercise some sort of decision or choice or uh, behavior or whatever, it isn't the same every time. It has to fit in the, in the context for which it's needed. And so I personally, I mean, the, the concept of the Holy Spirit is a tough one. You know, we could argue that till the cows come home, but I associate the Holy Spirit with wisdom and that wisdom that comes for you to be able to make the decisions and choices that one has to make virtually all day, every day throughout your life. And so I see it as coming to bear on making the right decisions. And so those decisions that you make with wisdom are going to produce life instead of death. We go back to creation, right? I was just going to say, right, which is the which is the creation cycle, and so uh, just yeah. again, not to beat the dead horse, but you know, in in all of our study of the Torah and all of our you know pursuing and understanding all the commandments that can be so weird, and you know, sometimes we don't understand them. In all those things, the one thing that I want to encourage everybody to keep in mind is that is it life producing? Is it is it order producing? So we talked about wisdom. We're going to take a break and come back on the next side where we'll get into chaos and order, cosmic mountain, waters of chaos, the ziggurats, and all this other cool stuff that we find actually in the story of the flood. And uh, it's going to be 
challenging for some of us to kind of rethink these symbols and rethink these things that happen. Uh, but I also think it really is going to provide a lot of growth. So uh, thank you, Dina. We'll be right back right after the break. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> 